This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, I'm Michael Buckley with the Bright Focus Foundation. Welcome to today's Bright Focus chat, safety and the older driver. If today's your first time joining us, welcome. I'll tell you briefly about who we are and what we'll do today. Bright Focus is funding some of the top scientists in the world. These are researchers that are trying to find cures for macular degeneration, glaucoma, and Alzheimer's. And we try to share the news, the latest research findings and best practices with families that are impacted by these diseases. Uh, we have plenty of materials on our website, brightfocus.org. And um, today's Bright Focus chat is another way of sharing this information. Because we fund research in both mind and sight, we really thought that safety in the older driver would be a great topic for today because it's something that, that impacts you know, millions of American families. It's at the intersection of, of vision health and your brain health, your, your, your cognitive uh, health. So we thought it'd be a great opportunity. Uh, today, we're really fortunate to have one of, the, one of the nation's leading authorities on driving for, for older Americans. Her name is Ellen Scholl Davis. She directs the Older Driver Initiative at the American Occupational Therapy Association. She's spoken all across the country on this topic. Uh, you see her a lot in, in media articles on the topic. So we're just uh, really fortunate to, to have you with us, Ellen. So, so welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for including me um, in your chat series. And I'm thrilled to talk about a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Oh, great. So uh, for our listeners, uh, one out of every five drivers in America is over 65. So this makes, you know, and as our nation's population ages, this, this becomes an even more important topic. So, um, so Ellen, with, with, you know, again, 20% of the drivers in America over 65, before we get into some of the issues, you know, and, and challenges there, just a big picture, is our country getting better at, uh, at making cars and making roads that, uh, uh, that are safer? Well, there's a big question to start out with. Um, absolutely. And I, I like to, when we, when we talk about, when we lead with the idea that we're an aging um, society, um, one of the first lines I always want to start with is that's an opportunity. It's not a problem. We're really lucky to be having the medical care, the, the people being um, healthier, having access to, um, to really managing their, their, um, their self-care and their interest in being mobile in their community is a, it's a wonderful thing. So when we look at aging, what we have to do is, I think, shift the focus as we look at resilient survivors, people that are very experienced with driving, and try to do what we can to help people drive into their older years, recognizing that some things do change. And you're absolutely right. We are universally looking at this from many angles, from the person that I think we'll focus on a bit more today, but also we'll talk a bit about how cars have changed to accommodate these, um, the broadening of skill sets, let's say, of drivers, and the broadening of skill sets of drivers navigating on the roads. And the road infrastructure has been changing to accommodate this using com concepts like universal design. And we can talk about that as we go through this chat. Well, great. And so, you know, we talk about the re resilience and, and, you know, positive, uh, proactive adaptation to, uh, to some of the challenges that, is, that, you know, comes with age. What are some of the challenges that, that make driving harder for some older Americans? Well, one thing I like to do when I think of challenges and aging is distinguish aging from medical conditions. 
Um, medical conditions like glaucoma are not are not sort of normal aging, if you will. They're common in aging, they, and more people as we age acquire some of these medical diagnoses, but let's just not confuse them with the concept of aging. So aging with medically related changes that are really, you know, unexpected, they're not what you planned for. You could have been going to exercise class, you could have been doing everything, I use air quotes, right, and you still can be acquiring some medical diseases, medical changes. So I think the idea of um, aging with medical conditions is a different kind of demand. It's a new kind of demand for people to recognize, learn about it, empower themselves, to be able to adapt to these changes and understanding that it's not something you maybe wanted. It's not maybe something you deserved. However, it does not have to be a showstopper. And it's something you can really do a lot about when we embrace understanding these changes. Yeah, no, exactly. And it sounds like, you know, it's both, from my understanding of the issue, it's both a vision acuity issue, but also um, sometimes a cognitive health. Like, is it, are those two sort of intertwined or are those sort of separate, separate challenges in terms of brain health and eye health? Oh, boy. Um, I think they're all different. They're all different mechanisms, although there is, there is some literature that supports that when our vision is compromised, when we see less, it can look sometimes like a cognitive decline, and really it's because we didn't get the information. So there really is, um, I would say, some support of really doing everything you can to optimize your vision with the eye doctor visits, the health of your eye, doing everything you can to comply with the medical care that's possible, because the more we get sensory information in from our eyes, from our, from our feeling, from our bodies, the more we are, um, that supports our cognitive alertness, so to speak, within, within how we manage. Cognitive changes as a diagnosis, like we might jump to dementias, is another, that's just another category of medical conditions that some people are faced with. Yes, no, I appreciate that. And, you know, I know I've heard you speak a little bit today and, and in the past about trying to take charge, trying to be proactive. Um, so this doesn't have to be a, I think a lot of us, when we think about older driving, um, think about something negative, think about something that, that's, you know, unexpected and unfortunate and unpleasant. But I've heard you talk about how to get ahead of this. Um, how would you, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, you know, and I, I, I work in rehab, so, of course, my my professional perspective, my background is trying to help people be informed and figure out what they can do about it. But, you know, the first step is, is difficult because the idea of understanding what's going to happen to us or understanding the possible conditions associated with something can be kind of overwhelming and depressing. And what we... What I try to do, and I do get accused of being a Pollyanna sometimes, but I think there is some empowerment in knowledge. I think we can. I used to sometimes talk to clients that worked with saying, beat it with brains. You know, if you can work on understanding the physiological changes that you don't have control over and then figure out how you can balance those changes with some adaptation or compensation or things that you can do, even though it takes 
a bit of understanding that we're doing this because, again, we didn't ask for it. But if we start taking the challenge on, if I'm going to learn how to best do what I need to do, that is really positive. And I, when I think of especially the aging community, I think of them as experts at change. I think that we need to recognize that people, as they age, every decade, you get better at change. Every decade, something's different. We've been acquiring change. We've been adapting to things for a very long time. So I think if we can try to, to frame some of these adaptations to these vision changes to tap in to the resiliency and the, the um, experience of adapting to change, it's a much more positive and if I can just add to that, I worry sure. sometimes that if we acknowledge changes, sometimes others in our life or our community can, can jump to conclusions. They can, if you say, I'm, I'm worried that it's not as easy to see the stop signs, I think we may be afraid to mention that because we may be afraid others are jumping to conclusions like, well, then you shouldn't drive. That's a big yeah. leap. And I think we have to welcome these conversations to be recognizing these changes First, with figuring out what to do about them before we jump to next step conclusions. Well, that, that's great. And I appreciate that point a lot. And so, Ellen, we just got a question, um, uh, a listener from Utah, that really gets to the point that you just mentioned about, you know, when you either announce something about yourself or somebody observes something about uh, about you. And what are some of the, the things to look for either in your own driving or in other or in um other persons, another person's driving that um, that might be cause for for concern. You know, that's a very almost I would say a loaded question um, for this format because I think there are a number of things we can look for. I think we look for them every day, whether we're watching our kids as drivers or we're driving in a, our, ourselves. Um, mm. And then we have to distinguish um, bad habits from things that indicate loss of um, skill and ability that leads toward decisions about not driving. Mm -hmm. There are a number of publications out there that have lists of things called warning signs, and they're helpful. I think if you, if you go to the, the Hartford um, um, Center for Mature Market Excellence, um, our AOTA website, there's um, AAA, AARP, many groups have been d developing warning sign lists because people ask for this, and it is a good place, but it's a starter. And I think it's really important that warning signs are thought about in clusters. There are some bad habit clusters, and there are some warning signs that are more significant. And I will point out a couple of them that I think are worth taking um, – really um, allowing yourself to take seriously. When people get lost, getting home to a familiar place, it's a warning sign that should be thought about seriously. It's a piece of a puzzle. No one thing should act on its own. But getting lost, going to a familiar place, we can excuse it away sometimes, but it's a warning sign that's serious. Also, if you notice a loved one who need so much time to make a decision, such as stopping on the highway to decide if they'll exit or not, or coming really close to stopping, really needing so much more time than the driving environment demands, those are warning signs that should be looked at very seriously. But I think we have to think about warning signs as giving us a cluster of examples and a way to start a conversation and 
not jump to to preemptive um, conclusions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a great point. And for for um, uh, Ellen, today's uh, audience is generally people that have uh, been impacted by age-related macular degeneration, which for a lot of people, the vision change progresses very slowly. And so I think it, I think the, you made really good points about how you know if vision is changing gradually. What um, you know what what people should be should be mindful of. So. Um, you know, this this leads to I think what's just a really hard conversation in so many households across the country, and how to how to talk about this either whether you the driver bring it up or uh, or a family or a friend. I mean, what would you have some tips to navigate what to me would seem like a very challenging conversation? Well, if I can put my Pollyanna hat back on for a moment and ask the forgiveness of the listeners, I wish we could move this into a um, a important conversation but not be um, but somehow get away from feeling like it's a persecution conversation it's really tough but some of these changes are real and I think the hard part is is driving historically you know we used to we used to tease in the line of work that I'm in um, let me give you a little historical thought. Um, we used to talk about that men wanted to drive to their funerals. The, uh, you know, my father, born in, in 1925, when he got his license for 25 cents, it was a license for life. You know, he yeah. did not, he didn't see a driver's license as something that was tagged to his skill set. Now, he was also a small plane pilot, and he knew that he had to keep up his medical. But we don't have that sort of sense, or we didn't have that sort of sense about driving, that there's really a skill set that you need to keep, to keep driving. And I think that what we have to do is somehow figure out a way as families to talk about is the skill set, set still um, strong enough that the risk of driving is the best choice for you to stay active and stay healthy in your community as long as you can, or is the skill set changing where we really start, need to start thinking about ways to be um, preserving your mobility and your involvement in your community, but helping driving not be the only connector. And I think for some people, the emotion is tied to they know no other way. They feel like if they lose that, they're being cut off. And there's reports that are um, very that are that we find very um, disturbing in our research community that people are stranded without options when they lose the one yeah. familiar way to get around. So I, I think if this discussion can start to evolve as one is planning smart instead of who's going to be the mean evil one to take away, I think we can get ahead of it a little bit. No, I think that's a, that's a great point, and um, so so you know, to that point of trying to have it be a, a an actual conversation, and and um, are there ways that that a family uh, can can sort of make a make a commitment or make some sort of um, uh, plan that everybody involved, you know, has the cliched skin in the game on, so it isn't just that yanking the keys away. Are there are there some sort of commitment that families can make together on this? You know, I think that's an excellent question and one I hope people, especially people that have a condition that is progressive, even though it's slow, 
And so that's great. The advantage is it's slow, but we don't, we don't know what, you know, we know that something needs to be done. I think the idea of a family having a meeting or meeting, there are contracts. We even have one on the AOTA website. There's some, the one I like about the one we've posted on our website with AAA is that it's a contract, if you will, I use air quotes, if you could see me, that's sort of saying the, the family's saying, you know, if I can say mom or dad, let's just, as an example, I promise to do everything I can to support you in staying on the road as long as you can. You know, we'll, we'll get the eye appointments. We will do the research, look into what's out there. And the person with the, the condition um, is saying, I promise to you that I will prepare myself to, to hear what you have to say when you think it's time for me to reduce or stop. And you're making that commitment early on. You're making it with your full cognitive um, capacity, if you will. And if you're so unlucky to have both a vision issue and a cognitive issue, you have both a dementia and, a, you know, we call it comorbidities, the loved ones know what your wishes were and you made it explicit and clear. It's not unlike wills. We talk about people should be planning for their transportation, like they're planning for their money and they're planning for their housing. They're looking That's ahead and they're really they're really thinking about it and they're getting their family on boards as their advocates. Absolutely. Families should be their advocates. I in occupational therapy, we are your advocate. We're there to keep you on the road as long as safely possible, but we also have your back that if it's really dangerous and unwise, we're going to tell you because telling you is, is, is caring. Telling you is compassion. Telling, being willing to tell people what they want to hear and sometimes what they don't want to hear, but based on the best facts we can come up with, is compassion. And that underlines the whole concept of prevention. Yeah, no, I agree. That, that's that's a that's a great point. And sort of a broad brush question. I know there's, there's a range of products and services, whether it's offered by for-profit companies or, or other groups. It's just, just big picture. Um, what should someone be be thinking or looking for um, when they look to as they start to investigate different um, products or services that 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 might help somebody um, continue to drive? Well, I think one thing you have to distinguish is knowledge, um, knowledge as a driver, habits as a driver from medically related changes or um, disease related risk. So, number one shore up your knowledge, you know, if, if, and taking a refresher course, taking a course by AAA or AARP that, that might be offered by your driver safety council, or maybe even taking a lesson, so to speak, with a driving instructor to make sure you really know how to navigate those roundabouts, or you know how to use these, there's a lot of, um, and, and follow up this comment with the next question about the, the infrastructure in our, in the way our roads are designed. Yeah. But under, yeah. understanding how those roads are designed is part of your is part of your prevention package. But don't just don't mix that up with somebody who is helping you understand applying a vision related or medically related change to your driving skill. That's different. So we've got knowledge and habits, and we want to we want to get rid of any of those bad habits if we can because that's gonna that's a risk reduction uh, effort. But yeah, then we also yeah. need to look specifically at how do you how do you manage 
the field loss, the changes with macular degeneration. And that's where the skills of an OT or a driving rib specialist mm -hmm. may make sense. Just as if you went to the ex to exercise, you may follow a video and learn how to do an exercise, or you may go to a physical therapist to figure out how to do your exercise when you've got arthritis. Those are, yeah. they're, they are both perfectly legitimate services out there. But pick which one fits for you and what your needs are. Well, that's great. I think that, that sets up well the question we just got from Michigan, which um, is obviously a very important state in this, in this conversation. Um, uh, the caller is wondering um, if you could comment on are there particular features that are currently, you know, in some newer model cars that you think are very helpful and even kind of looking down the road, what do you think of self-driving cars? So kind of, you know, what, what should somebody look for in a car right now? And then just sort of thinking ahead, do you think there's a future for self-driving cars? Well, there's absolutely a future for self-driving cars, but it's not tomorrow. Although when we look at the vision community, the self-driving um, shuttles or transportation vehicles is something that's going to be, I think, sooner on the horizon. And managing getting on and off a shuttle or managing getting getting where you need to go using a drive, uh, an unescorted uh, mode of public transportation, yeah. um, that's going to be an earlier question. So getting, so that's, but I, absolutely mm -hmm. that's in the future. And I think um, we need to be part of the advocacy group, paying attention mm -hmm. to the development of these features and making sure our needs are, spoke, are mentioned. But getting back to the individual car, oh, there's tremendous, there's a tremendous um, explosion in the features in a vehicle, both to, and I would distinguish both to help, um, help us um, navigate or use a car, how, how to see the controls, how to manage the operation of the vehicle, and also how to survive a crash, the survivability idea of a crash. Mm -hmm. And that's where you look at the safety features that are in vehicles. And we have a program called CarFit, if you've ever heard of it, car-fit.org. Um, mm -hmm. That's an education program between AAA, AARP, and AOTA. What we do Great. there is we look at helping um, people understand how the safety features are designed to work and make sure they take advantage of them. I, I often use the analogy that um, that cars, if you think of a race car, if you hopped in a race car as a short woman and the driver was a six foot four male, it's possible that all those fabulous safety features wouldn't do you one bit of good if you didn't <laughs> tighten them up and get them down to your size. And so yeah. the idea, and that's, and our vehicles are not one size, our, our vehicles are one size fits all. We have to adjust to make them fit up. We don't buy a car for a five foot four person. We buy a car yeah. that fits a wide range of people. So we need to learn how to adjust those. And we also have all these other navigation features within our vehicle. My other analogy I like to use, I think buying a car is more like buying a new iPhone. It's not, it used to be, you know, when we got a phone in our house, you just picked it up and you answered and you dialed the, dialed the dials. And now you get a phone that's got all these different features and how do they work? You know, our cars are more like that now. Yeah. And so it really takes some time to learn them. Yeah, I feel like I'm going on mother. and on because I can. No, I can no, go that's on a great point. No, my mother, topic. my mother talks about the computer in her car, so I certainly, yeah, certainly understand that. Um, I want, you know, I don't want to talk for a moment about the role of the eye doctor because, um, to me, this is a really interesting, sort of a little complicated situation. Now, my understanding is in a number of states, 
the eye doctor has to tell the the state motor vehicle uh, agency if if a person you know if a person has had you know significant deterioration um, in their vision. But yet I also don't want people to feel like they shouldn't go to an eye doctor because they lose their license. So is my premise correct? And if so, like how does somebody? What's a positive role for the eye doctor in this? Oh, that's a loaded question because um, I think the proper response to, you know, there is every most states have vision requirements, have vision, minimum vision requirements for acuity. Some have it for peripheral fields. Um, that's a leap to say that the, the eye doctor, although they measure these things sometimes in their appointments, depending on where you're at in the type of the visit you're having, they are not necessarily um, in the role or have wanted to be in the role of starting this conversation about your driving. And I, I know this is a national podcast, but I'm just going to yeah. take a little bit of a risk here and say they're conflicted. I think as a general mm -hmm. group, they're conflicted. They want you as consumers to get your eye health checked. They want you to come in. They don't not want you to compare to link them with your driver license. On yeah. the other hand, if you really want to practice prevention and you really want to understand if your eye changes are going to affect driving, you need to hear this from them. So my advice in this podcast is ask your doctor to talk to you about your vision and your state vision licensing requirements, and you may need to bring a copy of them in because most doctors are likely not aware of them because they, it's kind of like they don't want to go there. But if you ask, mm -hmm. they can talk to you about it, and that is not a leap saying they're making a licensing decision. And let me distinguish. Doctors do medical things. They diagnose. They measure. They give us the they will tell us what our acuity is as a number. It is the state driver licensing agency that decides what that number means. It's the state licensing agency issues your license. The state licensing division um, removes licenses. Doctors don't. Doctors come up with the data. And there's a fuzzy lane between this whole concept of reporting. But what I could say, what I would, again, I'll put my Pollyanna hat on here. I, I admit it. If we as consumers embrace the fact that we want to know if we're no longer safe for ourselves or others, we want to know the data, and then we can help decide making this decision. If we don't meet our state licensing requirements, what are we going to do with that information? And I don't think we always have to make it somebody else's sort of responsibility to tell us what to do. I think we can yeah, no, I... be better at managing what to do with the data. So no, I invite you, you to invite yeah. your in, invite your doctor to talk to you about it. Invite them to bring it up. Tell them you tell them you want to know what the information is and help help bring the vision to the, the ophthalmology, optometry community into helping us with some of these um some of this um analysis of this data. That's great. Now, I appreciate the, the, the nuanced approach there. And, and you're right. I think these, these should be positive uh, roles that, that these 
you know, these professionals can play. And kind of staying on that, just, you know, in a couple minutes that we have left, um, you know, lots of these, you know, people that aren't as versed in these issues as you are, will talk about driving in a very binary way. Either you drive or you don't drive. I was wondering if you could comment on, are there ways to sort of transition or split the difference in terms of reducing how or when or where you drive? Or are there sort of transitions and how should someone navigate that? I think that's a great question. And I can tell you, I think everybody, everybody, no matter their age or their um, their medical diagnoses, should become more transportation savvy. We should have more than one egg in our basket, so to speak. Um, we could we could break a leg tomorrow and need to use another mode of transportation. I think the more that you learn what your other options are in your community and actually use them. When I when I first started traveling to D.C., I was nervous on the metro. Now I can read a book and I don't even think about it when I'm taking the, yeah. the subway to my destination. There is something about practice, and I would encourage people to not be um, car dependent. That is something we do to ourselves. So if taking away the car has been our only lifeline, we've we've put ourselves to some degree in that condition. Whether you're mm-hmm. looking at housing and you want to make sure, does this house I'm moving to really have access to other modes of transportation? Whether we're looking at, um, we might be afraid of using the bus. How could we practice? How could we ride with family members? How could your group of friends meet for lunch using the bus, you know, every so often so that this option becomes your tool so that Mm -hmm. as you experience changes and many times for people, changes don't happen like overnight and you may have good days and bad days that you feel like you can use other options. Have you tried using Uber? Have you used a cab lately? Have you thought about um, having more, more arrows in your quiver, as they say, um, so that you are, again, in charge of being transportation independent. Well, those, are, those are great points, and I would think that that would help the um, some of the, some of maybe the, the the mental health adjustments to um, you know to to still maintain, particularly as we are hopefully heading out of the pandemic, these opportunities to to have that, and that's something that we see a lot with the research that Bright Focus funds about the importance of social and intellectual and cognitive cognitive stimuli that, that comes from get, getting out. So no, those are great points. And uh, can before, I, com- yeah, can I comment just quickly on cost? Sure. Yeah. Because yeah, I think great. a lot of times, again, we do what we're used to. We've, we've had a car, we've paid for renting a slip or a garage slot, whatever for our vehicle. And we don't necessarily translate that into um, how many rides would it pay for? And I think one of the things that that I would love to see when we talk about transitioning is understanding spontaneous rides might be more expensive. If I want to run out and get an ice cream cone and call a cab, yeah, it might cost me 20 bucks, but I want to go get an ice cream cone on Sunday. I don't need to use that every time. I might have my friend take me to the store on other times that works for her. So think about your transportation independence, your spontaneity, and be Try to be careful not to make it all based on just be, just because $20 may seem like a lot for a cab ride, actually paying $50 a month for pe- keeping your car in the garage and not using it is expensive too. So just thinking about sort of cashing out what you're spending on insurance in your car and thinking about really supporting your desire to stay active in the community 
whether you're a driver or not so much a driver or maybe not a driver. Yeah. No, I think that's great. I think I think that's a, a really under underappreciated perspective of cars cost a lot of money, even when even more than you think, and then and then it's hard to right. put a price tag on on independence. And uh, no, that's great. And so, Ellen, as we conclude this conversation, I found it just really interesting and appreciate you being both positive and nuanced because I think you're right. This kind of, this topic can be can be painted very black and white. This cop this topic can be painted as as you know all about loss and, and, and negativity. So I was wondering, as, as we conclude, do you have sort of uh, concluding final uh, comments or suggestions to our audience today? Um, well, I just really appreci appreciate the opportunity to talk about the things that we did. I really think prevention, prevention of crash, prevention of injury is really what we're talking about. And the reality is prevention means you do something before the bad happened. So really owning the idea of understanding what condition you might be dealing with, making sure you ask for as much information as you can from the care providers that you're going to. A lot of people are sort of afraid, afraid, I don't know, on, um, they worry to bring up the topic of driving because they don't want to, they don't want to be negative. Tell them you want to know, you want to be informed, you want to be a good steward of your transportation. You want to drive as long as you can. You want to, to access every support that there is, and there are supports. But you also want to start thinking ahead so that you're in charge of making your own decisions and thinking up as best you can and thinking about your options. So I just encourage you to access your providers, your doctors, your eye doctors, your occupational therapists, your, the various providers that might be in your community to help you be as informed as you can be so you can make the best decision for your own situation. Well, that's great. That is a great advice for today's topic and great advice for, for many other, uh, many other parts of life. And so Ellen, on behalf of, of uh, Bright Focus and all of today's listeners, I just really want to thank you for, um, for doing such a great job today. You really um, shed a lot of light onto, onto this topic. So thank you very much for being, being with us today. And thanks so much for your listeners for, embracing this topic. I really appreciate the opportunity. Have a great day. Well, all right. Thank you. On behalf of Bright Focus, thank you very much for joining us. Goodbye. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.